Daniel, am I on? I am. Wow. This is great. This place is filling up. Thank you for showing up on a soggy Saturday morning. As I was driving up from Santee, I was thinking, it is so wet. These roads are so bad. I was just praying that that wouldn't keep anybody that needs to be here today at home, that it wouldn't be an excuse, because we look for excuses sometimes, don't we, to not deal with some of these things. Um, I'm just going to jump right into it. The reason I'm here today is because I have come to believe over the last few years that our mental and emotional health, or unhealth as the case may be, is one of the most important topics in the church today. I think it's one of the biggest challenges the church is going to be facing moving forward for the next several decades at least. And I also think that it's not on everybody's radar. I think it's somehow uh, slipping through the cracks as not a top priority. And yet I think it is one of the most important topics we need to be dealing with in the church for this reason. When we are not mentally and emotionally healthy, then whatever it is that we're struggling with becomes obstacles. It gets in the way, it interferes with our ability to connect with God, to connect with other people, to be fully present in worship, to be fully enjoying the, the community and the life that God offers to us. And for people who are outside of the church, I really have come to believe that their mental and emotional struggles can be a barrier to them coming to know the Lord in the first place. And with all these barriers and obstacles, I view this topic as an opportunity for us to clear the way for people. We don't necessarily have to sell what we're selling. We don't have to go out there and make a hard sell about Jesus. Jesus sells himself. The Holy Spirit sells him. But what we can do for our part is to clear some of these obstacles. And then once people are part of this community, to clear the obstacles to their personal and spiritual growth as well. Because when we're stuck, we're stuck. Do you know what I mean? When we're stuck, the growth stops. When we're stuck, the joy gets tempered, right? Did you know that you were made to experience more peace, more love, more joy, more contentment than what you're experiencing today? You might be thinking, oh, I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty content right now. Doesn't matter. You're still made for even more than that. Maybe you're thinking, wow, I really could use some contentment in life, or wow, I have not experienced joy in a long time. Well, these may be some of the obstacles that are holding you back, that are getting in the way of you being able to accept that gift of joy from God. And that's what I want to help us begin to think about. Now, <clears throat> reality is a one-time event like this is not going to change everything. It's not going to change your life, and it's not going to change the church. We have to make this a starting point. You have to agree today that when we leave, it's not like, gee, that was nice, and we move on to other things, that you're going to keep this in front of you, and that as a church community, you're going to be willing to make this an important topic, an important uh, goal to uh, help others reach an optimal place where these obstacles are out of their way, these stumbling blocks are out of their way, and they can really enjoy life in Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 All right. Here's what we're going to do. I have... Two stories I want to tell you in this first session. You know we have two sessions today? Did you know you, you signed up for two sessions? Like, oh, two sessions. Yeah. And I'm a teacher too, which means, oh, yeah. So two sessions. In the first session, we're really going to focus on personal and mental health, okay, as individuals. 
In the second session, we're going to take a look at the church, and we're going to talk about the church and some obstacles to good mental health in the church, some things that are getting in the way based on our church culture, some things that we do that maybe aren't helping us and helping those within the church. So in this first session, I want to talk to you about uh, the connection between our biology. I'm a biology professor, by the way. Uh, the connection between our biology and the stress of our biology and our mental and emotional health. And then from there, I want us to consider a framework for building resilience. We're not going to get rid of stressors entirely, right? That's part of life. And so when the stressors do come, how can we be strong in, in the face of them? How can we actually grow and benefit from them rather than being broken down further and further from them? That's what we call resilience. And so we're going to build a framework for how we can build some resilience into our lives. Then we'll take about a 15-minute break. Uh, not about. Sorry, Kathy's looking at me. She's like, 15 minutes. We're going we're going to take a 15-minute break. And when we come back, we're going to look at the church as a whole. So that's where we're headed today. Two caveats that I want to put out there first. I just mentioned that I'm a biology professor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I am a trained scientist. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm someone who personally struggles with anxiety and depression. Okay, those are my credentials. That's why I'm here today, because I'm bringing that perspective into this topic. Not because I'm a therapist who sees thousands of patients over my lifetime, but because I am the sufferer. I'm the person sitting in the other chair, trying to learn how to deal with this, and then trying to learn how to help the, the body of Christ to deal with this as well. Second caveat is that I'm still on this journey. I'm not standing up here because I figured it out. Yay, Dave figured it out. Go talk about it. No, I'm still on this journey. And isn't it, while we're on this topic, isn't it ironic? God has such a sense of humor. He's like, okay, Dave, your big challenge in life is going to be anxiety. Oh, great. And I want you to put on a microphone and talk to hundreds of people at a time and tell them all your deepest secrets. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Lord. We're going to talk about this. All right. He's got a sense of humor. You got to admit, he's got a sense of humor. All right, so with those caveats in mind, let me tell you two stories. And then we'll see how these two stories are related, okay? First story, <clears throat> a little more of a serious one. They're both serious. It's scary in their own ways. First one goes back a few years. Uh, I wasn't feeling well. Just sitting in Sunday morning church, kind of uncomfortable, not feeling so great, and uh, ended up with some kind of a stomach bug, it felt like, right? And so typically, what do we do with that? You wait it out a few days, and it clears up on its own. Well, after a week, I still wasn't feeling well. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go into the doctor See what the doctor has to say. They ran some tests. You're totally healthy, Dave. Probably just a virus. Let's just wait it out. Wait it out a few more days, and I'm actually getting worse at this point. I'm starting to feel not only like digestive uncomfortableness, use your imagination, but starting to feel kind of weak, tired. My strength is being sapped. Uh, dizziness starting to set in a little bit, a little bit of vertigo, not sleeping well some headaches coming on, like, all right, something's not right here. I had recently, before that, traveled to Central America just a few weeks before, and I, and I say I'm a biologist. I'm specifically an infectious diseases specialist. <laughs> so you know exactly where my thinking went, right? So those doctors must have loved me, because I had myself fully diagnosed. I told them exactly what I had, and here's my signs and symptoms, and here's the, the, the stage and the disease process I'm in right now. Here are the treatment options. I'm like, oh, who is this guy? So to get rid of me, they said, okay, we'll run a few more tests, but you know what? Even those came back negative. 
So after a couple weeks now, I'm starting to get nervous because my, my health is actually going down and nobody seems to know what's going on and everything I come up with is that they're running tests for. They're, they're honoring that. They're running the tests, all coming back negative. So over the next six weeks at that point, so the whole, whole ordeal before there was an actual accurate diagnosis was eight weeks. So for the next six weeks, I'm visiting specialists to rule out all the scariest stuff, right? So I'm seeing oncologists and we're doing brain scans to make sure there's no tumors and we're doing abdominal scans to make sure there's no blockages and tumors and things like that. I went to the endocrinologist to look at hormonal imbalances, uh, the neurologist to look at my brain, uh, infectious diseases more than once to deal with and rule out some scary tropical infectious diseases. Uh, on down the line, right? Ear, nose, throat wanted to look at my uh, inner ear to see if that what was, was causing the, the, the vertigo and that was spreading to everything else. And time and time again, the doctor said the same thing. You're healthy. Not only are you healthy, but you're like textbook healthy. Like that's the nicest brain we've ever seen, right? We're gonna take pictures and put it in a textbook because you got no problems with it, no lesions, no anything, right? And, and in, so on the one hand, right, I'm thinking, oh good, I don't have this tumor, I don't have this disease, I don't have that disease. But you know what, without answers and knowing that I'm sick, I was getting more and more anxious, more and more worried, more and more fearful. So after two months, I finally had to tell the university, I can't come back for the semester. You guys have to cover me. I don't know what's going on. I'm afraid I'm dying, literally. I'm afraid there's something they haven't found yet, and you're going to have to cover me while I, while I sort this out. And, and I work for Point Loma Nazarene University, the most gracious people in the world. And so they absolutely covered me while the doctors and I worked through this. At the two-month mark, one of the specialists almost offhand said, you know, I've seen these same symptoms in someone suffering from chronic stress. Maybe you should go to psychiatry. I thought, what? And let me tell you, it was during the summer, which as a professor is my slow time. I'm thinking, no, we're getting ready to go camping. I don't have to teach for a few months. There's no way this is stress. And it was also a little insulting, if I'm honest, because I thought he was saying to me, it's all in your head. You're imagining these things. Now I can tell you as a biologist going back and really learning the biology and the neurobiology of this, your brain can create very real signs and symptoms, very real disease, okay? When you're vomiting, you're not imagining that you're vomiting, right? That's very, very real. And so my first response was, no, that's, that's not it. We need to keep looking for a, a bodily solution, not a brain solution. But you know what, I was so exhausted at that point, so mentally worn out from this and fearful of where this was gonna go, that I said, all right, let's go to psychiatry. And I was diagnosed, and it wasn't hard. And in fact, they said I was a pretty clear fit for generalized anxiety disorder with panic disorder and depression. It fit really perfectly, everything, including all those physical symptoms. And I thought, wow. So now I'm, st I'm again, on the one hand, I'm, I'm, I'm horrified, right? And on the other hand, I'm so relieved. It was the biggest feeling of relief in so long. I actually sat and cried when they gave me this diagnosis. Could not believe after months of absolute misery that we finally had a diagnosis. So my first thought, of course, is great, just write the prescription and I'll go back to work. <laughs> not that easy, right? This is not like a broken bone where we can put a cast on it in a few weeks, you're good to go. Right? It takes years to mess up the old coconut, and it takes years to unscramble it 
to. And that's something I've had to come to terms with, right? This is not going to be a quick fix. This is, in fact, going to be a lifelong management and learning and growing uh, as, as, I, as I find out what's going on more and more and more, unpacking more. And I can tell you I'm definitely on a good track. Do I still struggle? Absolutely. Right? Do I still have setbacks? Absolutely. Do I still worry about it sometimes? Yeah. I'm a lot less fearful of it now that I know what it is. Something about identifying whatever it is that, that, that you're facing, putting a name to it. Right? Some people say, well, I don't want to be labeled. Well, sometimes there's some benefit to that label. It takes a lot of the fear away. And you realize, wow, I'm not the first person with this. I'm not the worst case psychiatry has ever seen. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing nervously because you felt that way. You'd be like, oh, nobody would understand. Not even the psychiatrist would understand. Let me tell you, if your psychiatrist ever goes, what? You fire that psychiatrist, get another one. Because they have seen it all. You shouldn't be able to surprise your therapist or your psychiatrist. All right. Okay. So I've been on a long journey since then of healing and growth. And within that first year, the Lord put it on my heart to start sharing what I was learning with people really, really early into this process. I'm a teacher, so this comes naturally to me. This is what I like to do. I like to learn and then share what I'm learning. It's just the way God has designed me. Let me tell you a second story. And at first you're going to be like, Dave, how does this even relate and then we're going to see the connection, okay? Second story. We're going to rewind like 25 years before that, okay? We're going to go back in the 1980s. I was a teenager. I was 19 years old. All my friends were off in college, and I was not ready for college in a lot of ways. And so I had not gone to college. So all my friends were off in college, and it was late summer, early fall, September, I think. And I thought, you know what? To celebrate fall with all my friends taken off and what have you, I'm going to go up to the Sequoias and I'm going to camp and hike for a few days. And back then I didn't own a car or a truck or anything, I just had a motorcycle. So whatever I could strap on the back of my motorcycle, I had like a plastic egg crate, remember those, or milk crates? Yeah, so I just bungeed that on the back and there was no room for a tent, no room for a sleeping bag, important things, right? So I get up, so I thought of myself as a mountain man. And so I got up to... So I got up to the Sequoias after a long ride from here, and I was exhausted, and I set up my camp, and it was beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. And I made a fire, and I had some dinner, and I threw all the scraps from dinner into the fire. And remember, I didn't have a sleeping bag, so I made a bed of twigs and branches. I brought a, a Mexican serape with me, and I just laid under the stars and fell asleep. And I was laying on my back like this, sleeping, and probably had a big smile on my face because I was super happy to be there. It was just beautiful, and I couldn't think of a better place to be right then. And I remember the moon was right about, uh, I don't know, what's that, 10 o'clock, something like that. <clears throat> and I, something stirred, and I opened my eyes. You know, you, you wake up a little every now and then, and the moon's kind of, I don't know, midnight or, or, you know, 12 or 1. I don't know, a couple hours have passed. And I'm thinking, okay, why did I wake up? So I lift my head, and I could have reached out and touched the back end of a bear as it was stepping over my feet. It didn't notice me. It thinks I'm a log, I guess. I'm laying there asleep, and had I lifted my leg like that, I would have kicked him in the bum. And I'm thinking, holy smokes. I didn't say holy smokes. I wasn't a Christian then, I said something else. And I'm watching as this bear walks past me, not even noticing me. Now, let's think about what happens when, when, when right, you get adrenaline, right? Your eyes are wide open. Mouth goes dry, hands are sweaty and clammy, stomach kind of tightens up. 
you're laser focused, right? If somebody had said, hey, Dave, let's talk. You can't think about anything else. You're just absolutely focused on the one thing. Your breathing is fast, but you're trying to be quiet so the bear doesn't hear you, right? And you know what I'm talking about, right? What do we call that? That's the fight or flight response, isn't it? So I had this full on fight or flight response. And I'm like, oh man, oh man, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And it rummages around and it's, it's pushing on my motorcycle for whatever reason. It goes into the fire ashes and finds some scraps that didn't burn all the way. Okay, you got to pay attention, Dave. And then it did something absolutely terrifying. So it's got its back to me like this and I'm laying on the ground where you guys are. And all of a sudden it lifts its head and it turns and it makes eye contact with me. And I'm like, oh, this just got real, Right? And then he decides, huh, what are you? And he turns and he starts trotting right towards me. Like, what's up? And he's coming right at me. And a million things going through my head, okay? I'm thinking, okay, he didn't know I was here. He's a black bear, so he doesn't see me as dinner. This isn't, we're not in Yellowstone with a grizzly or something. This is a black bear. He doesn't think I'm dinner, but maybe he thinks I'm like a big log. And what do they do to logs? They paw at them and they find bugs and things. All this is going through my mind in a fraction of a second. I'm like, I have to act now or I'm going to die or at least get scraped up and wish I was dead. So I'm laying like this and seeing him trotting towards me. And when he's just a few feet away, I'm like, this is it. And I just jump up and throw my arms in the air and I start yelling, ah, get out of here, ah. And the bear was just as scared as me at that point. He's like, I didn't know logs could do that. And he puts on the brakes and he turns and he runs out of sight. I'm like, ah, right, I'm big, I'm scary. And now I'm standing here alone in the woods, big and scary. Too scared to even put my hands down. I don't know how long I stood like this. I stood like this for a while. And my heart is pounding, and my eyes are open. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm still holding my hands up. I can put my hands down. And slowly my arms come down. And over the next few minutes, the heart rate starts to slow a little bit. The breathing slows a little bit. And I start to calm back down again, right? And then over the next several hours, I calm down even more, right? And I start to reset my, my anxiety level, my, my readiness level, right? Okay, so what's the connection? You're like, Dave, those are two very interesting stories and what on earth do they have to do with each other, okay? Any stressor of any kind, a bear trotting towards you or uh, a notice of foreclosure on your home, any of them trigger the exact same generalized stress response that we call the fight or flight response, okay? When you look at your checkbook and you realize we're not gonna be able to pay the bills this month, when you look at your marriage and you realize we are in trouble right now, this is not working, when the stressors of your job and the expectations of your job are piling up and you're thinking, I cannot keep up with this, you trigger the exact same stress response because God in his wisdom designed us with one stress response. Whether that stress is a physical threat like a bear or that stress is some kind of a psychological threat. In either case, we don't differentiate. Stress is stress and we trigger this response. Okay? That's the connection I'm trying to make with you right now. And what you need to know is that the stress response Fight or flight is supposed to come down again like it did after the bear ran off. It's supposed to come down again and reset. But imagine if the bear didn't run off. He's like, what are you, big or something? <coughs> what, are you going to fight me? Come on. Really? This is the best you got, dude? Or what if he ran off and then he came back an hour later? Just as I was settling down, he came back and triggered it again. 
Or what if he came back with a few of his buddies? He's like, yeah, that's the guy I was telling you about. He thinks he's tough. Let's go show him a thing or two. We're bears, right? What if that then happened day after day, night after night? You'd break, wouldn't you? You'd mentally and emotionally break, okay? We're, we're designed to handle incredible amounts of stress, more than most of us will ever, ever face, hopefully. But in very short bursts, and then we need to be able to come back down to that baseline again. We need to reset again before the next stressor. Otherwise, we stay up here and we get triggered again and again and again and again. And when that happens, that's when we break. That's when disorders happen. That's when anxiety disorders happen. That's when we develop panic disorders and OCD. That can aggravate pre-existing depression or it can even bring on depression. It can bring on generalized anxiety or specific phobias. Stress can do that. And so when the stressor is not something that turns around and runs away like a bear. Now, don't you wish when you got that foreclosure notice you could, it would turn around and run away like a bear? But there it is, and you wake up the next morning and it's still there. And the next month, you're still trying to figure out what to do. We're, we're at that heightened alert level again and again and again and again. And that's how we develop these disorders, these stress-related disorders like anxiety disorders. And it's one of the many ways that we can develop depression as well. So I want you to learn to recognize that in your own life. I want you to learn to recognize when you're being triggered. Because a tiny trigger might be something you can handle. But the problem is if you don't reset from that tiny trigger, the next one piles on and the next one piles on and the next one piles on until pretty soon 20 triggers all look like a bear running at you. And because they're not going away, you stay in that high alert state and we develop these disorders. We were never meant to stay in that high alert state for very long at all. In fact, we're not meant to stay in that high alert state for more than a few minutes or a few hours. So anything that goes beyond a few hours has the potential to really hurt us in a lot of ways. So learning to recognize those triggers, those fight or flight triggers in your life, and then intentionally creating the time and the space so that you can come down again. You can reset again. If we don't reset, that's when we get into trouble. Do you see the connection between the two stories? Yeah. Now, I'm a biologist, which means I have to tell you a little bit of the biology of the fight or flight response, just a tiny bit. So bear with me. And there'll be a quiz after, and then we'll grade them and then you'll give presentations. Okay. <laughs> you have to understand that the fight or flight response has two goals, right? If you're facing a life-threatening situation, you either need to fight or you need to protect yourself and get away. In either case, you need a tremendous amount of energy. And so your body, your brain sends signals to your body to mobilize oxygen and then organic carbon, right? Food, glucose, sugars, things like that, fats all at once get pumped into your bloodstream and delivered to your large muscles so you can either punch the bear in the nose or climb a tree, right? The same thing happens when it's a psychological trigger, though those things are a lot less helpful when it's a psychological trigger. The other purpose or goal of the fight or flight response is to put non-essentials on hold, okay? So for example, your immune system, you don't need it right then and there. You're gonna need it soon because you might get bitten or something like that, but you don't need it right then and there, which means if we're stuck in fight or flight for a long time, the immune system stays suppressed for a long time. Uh, sex drive, I think that's funny. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. But I, the reason I think it's funny that get, that gets suppressed is because I guess if like you're being chased by a bear, you shouldn't be thinking about sex at that moment. That's kind of the idea, 
right? It's sort of common sense, but God said, well, they're dumb. I'm going to go ahead and actually suppress the sex drive so they don't still try to think about that while they're running away from a bear. So these non-essentials get, get shut down or at least get put on pause, and everything else is, is geared towards getting oxygen and food molecules to your muscles, which means you're going to breathe shallow and fast, which means your heart is going to pound hard and fast. Your digestive tract is one of those non-essentials, and so it shuts down, which is why your mouth goes dry really quickly, which is why if you recently ate, you might feel nauseous. You might even vomit, which is why if you ate a while ago, it might actually go out the other end pretty quickly. Diarrhea is really common with chronic stress. It's the, uh, it's the body shutting everything, all these non-essentials. You might be thinking, well, isn't digestion important? Not for those two minutes while you're running from the bear. Okay? And then you can get your digestion going again later. But digestion takes a lot of your blood to be able to do it properly, and your body wants that blood going to your brain and your large muscles so you can survive in the moment, right? Imagine if you came in today and Kathy said, man, this crazy guy Dave didn't even show up. I need you to get up on stage and share your life story. Here's a mic. How do you feel about that? Maybe some butterflies in the stomach. Some of you are like, yeah. Okay, maybe your, maybe your threat level's bumped up just a little bit, right? That's the beginnings of the fight-or-flight response. You're thinking you're either going to fight Kathy or run away because you view that somehow as a threat to you, the idea of having to expose yourself and make yourself uh, vulnerable to so much risk by doing that, right? Again, it's psychological. There's no physical threat to you, and yet we still trigger that fight-or-flight. Those butterflies are the fight-or-flight response. Okay. So then multiply that tenfold and you've got a full-blown fight-or-flight response. So the response starts in your brain, your conscious brain, with how you think about incoming information. Data that you see around you is important. Okay? So data from your eyes. You see a bear coming at you. Data from your ears. Maybe you're pulling into an intersection. Somebody honks and screeches past you. And your heart starts pounding and you catch your breath. Right? Uh, information from touch. You know, someone is touching you in a way that's painful or something along those lines. We take in all this data and then our, our conscious brain sends it to a tiny little portion in the center of our brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala's job is to take all that information and try to interpret it in light of your memories, which means everything you've ever learned in life, and your emotions. Based on your memories and your emotions, your amygdala then sets your threat level. If it says, you know what, all's good, we're going to be maybe at threat level one. That's a good place to be, right? That's Bob Marley kind of, everything's going to be all right. But maybe threat level five is full-blown, like we're ready for nuclear war here. This is as big of a threat as we're going to get. We have to actually fight the bear right now. The different stressors you face have the potential to bump you up in your threat level. And depending on what threat level your amygdala sets, that's going to determine how your brain responds and to what degree it responds with fight or flight. So if you bump from a one to a two, maybe you get some butterflies in your stomach as the fight or flight response says, well, let's start shutting down digestion in case we need to run, okay? And so you feel a little bit of that. You're like, oh yeah, I'm physically noticing that. Maybe if you get bumped up to a level three, mouth goes dry, hands start getting clammy. You might, might start getting a little shaky as all the, those extra high energy molecules are going to your muscles. And so you get this shakes going on a little bit. Um, maybe you're focused, you're laser focused. You realize I'm trying to distract myself. I'm trying to read scripture or sing a song or have a conversation, but I can't think about anything right now. 
ooh, you might be at a three or a four. By the time you hit five, you're like ready to go. Right here, right now, it's fight or flight. What's it going to be? We've all experienced those things at different levels, haven't we? Okay. There's two pathways that the amygdala ultimately triggers. There's a chemical pathway with things like adrenaline and cortisol, both of which take at least minutes, if not longer, to really impact you, and then they take a while to settle back down again. But your nervous system is actually made of a bunch of electrical currents that can, in an instant, think of a startle response. You're watching a movie and something jumps out at you and you startle. You're not waiting minutes for the cortisol or the adrenaline to kick in. There's an electrical response that actually sends messages to your muscles that cause you to tense up and be ready to fight or flee. We've got both of those working at exactly the same time. Next time you're feeling anxious or worried or nervous or you're watching a scary movie, notice some of these things in your own mind and your own body and recognize that you need to reset them after. You need that time to reset and get back down to a level one. Because if you stay at two, it's a lot easier to go to three. If you stay at three for a while and you keep telling yourself, oh, it's going to get better at work. Oh, next week's going to be better on the job. Next month's going to be better financially. Okay, pretty soon you find yourself at a four. And you stay there too long and pretty soon we start developing these disorders of the whole system. This making sense? Yes. You ready for your quiz? Just kidding. As long as the threat is resolved quickly, we can handle just about anything. We're pretty amazing that way. If the threat is not resolved quickly, and I mean minutes to hours, we start to get stuck and we start to see side effects that God never intended. Things that are going to get in the way of us enjoying life. All right. So in these, we've got about 10 minutes left of this first session. You're, you're wondering. And I'll give you a break. Find the bathroom. Say hello to your friends. All that good stuff. But I want to finish by, by sort of giving you a framework for how to think about resilience. Resilience is this idea that when stressors hit me, I'm not going to break, right? It's a, a very good way to think about a goal, and there are ways to build up our resilience so that every little stressor doesn't break you. Some of you are here today because you know that any little stressor right now is going to set you off. You're like, I've just got to get out of this position because you're at a threat level four or five, and anything's going to tip you over. Anything's going to trigger you. How can we get ourselves back to that threat level one so that the, the things that aren't true life threats to us can bounce off us and we can grow and learn from them and move on? I want to put them into three different categories. Self-care is the first category, okay? Self-care is the first category for building resilience. Things like how we think about and perceive, number one, our stressors, the things that are challenging us in life, but also our own personal resources, our own ability to actually handle them. Right? If you've been telling yourself for years, I can't handle it, I can't handle it, I can't handle it, that puts you in a bad spot. Remember what the amygdala does? It takes information about stressors and it mixes it with your memories and your emotions to make the decision. You can actually influence those memories and emotions. The way you think and feel, you can influence. So that as the stressors hit you, they don't break you. Right? So the way you perceive both the stressors, is it really a life-ending threat to you? Is it really the end of the world? Or... Is there hope beyond this, right? Um, and do you actually have more resources, more capability to handle more than you're giving yourself credit for? So, are two areas that you can really work on in your self-care. I would think of those as mental and emotional self-care, essentially. Physical self-care is very important. Um, depending on your physical fitness level, disabilities, etc., doing anything that's a little bit more than what you're doing today, that's it, can make a difference. 
If you are on your feet for 20 minutes a day, maybe you can be on your feet for 40 minutes a day. That can make a big, noticeable difference. As a biologist, I'll tell you that that's one of the areas of resilience where there's actually the strongest scientific backing behind it. We know a lot of the chemical pathways, the positive chemical pathways that are induced with physical large muscle movements. If, you, if you're physically capable of sitting on an exercise bike at the YMCA and cycling a little bit, what? And that'll make a difference in the moment, but the long-term payoff is really where it gets good. You literally build resilience from a, a neurochemical perspective by moving your body. We were designed to move. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, becoming Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm not talking about bodybuilding. I'm saying doing just a little more than you're doing today. Whatever your body will allow you to do within your, your limitations and your health level. Very, very helpful, very important. And the third category and possibly the most important is spiritual self-care. I don't know where you're at with the Lord. I don't know if, if you're a believer, if you're just knocking on the door, checking things out, right? If, if you have a personal relationship with the Lord, that connection is one of the most important things for building resilience. And you know what I love? That the secular scientists discovered that. They're the ones that said, wow, people with true deep religious conviction are more resilient. Their brain chemistry is better. Yay, God, that's awesome. Right? I just think that's so exciting, right? where there's this validation of what Scripture tells us, that God is our refuge. He's the one that protects us more than anything else we can seek for. If you don't yet know the Lord, let me just suggest to you that you just talk to him, see what happens. Can't hurt. Right? If he's not really there, nothing happens. You're just talking into the universe or something. But if he's there, I bet you'll be amazed at how he responds. The three most basic fundamental spiritual disciplines are going to be prayer, and that can be really simple. Hey, God, you listening? I'm having a bad day. It can be as simple as that. Um, reading scripture, sitting down and looking at the Bible. If you don't like to read, get it on, you know, the version audio and let them read it to you. It's great. Um, so, so hearing from God in his word. And then worship. Scripture tells us we're actually made to worship. And when we're in a place of worship, we actually find incredible resilience building and healing. It's, it's one of the best perspectives we can ever get because it reminds us who it is that loves us and how much he loves us and what lengths he's gone to to love us and show us that love. And with that perspective, boy, anything can bounce off you. It's really a beautiful thing. Okay, so that was, that was self-care. The next category would be social care. And this basically means building a support community around you of safe people. Now, this is one of the real slow steps. It's an important one, but it's definitely one of the slow steps. You might be thinking, boy, if I stop and try to think of somebody around me that's safe, well, what's Dave mean by safe? I mean somebody that's not going to be judgmental of your struggles, somebody that's not going to try to fix you all the time. They're going to be supportive even if they don't get it. Even if they don't understand, they're still going to be supportive of you and your struggles. Somebody that's not going to gossip. Somebody that's not going to reinforce thinking of being a victim, things like that. Someone that's going to be a positive influence. And this is another important part. It needs to be a relationship that has sort of earned the right to hear your story. You know what I mean by that? It can bear the weight of your story. If you've got a heavy story to tell, you're going through a divorce right now, you can't just tell anybody that. Oh, well, the pastor, right, he's, he's a good guy. I bet he's safe. I'm just going to tell him. Well, have you built that kind of a relationship? We all know what I mean. It's hard to pinpoint that, but you, you know what I mean when maybe somebody overshares with you? And what I, you know, they, they come up and they start telling you, 
you've seen him every Sunday for the last year in the hallway and said hello and it's been very friendly. But now all of a sudden they pull you to the side and they start telling you about one of their wayward children. And you're thinking something isn't right about this. It's not that you're not a safe person. It's that that relationship hasn't been built up to where it can bear the burden of that particular story. And if you're thinking right now, I don't really have anybody in my life that can help bear those burdens with me, that, that I have that kind of a relationship with, commit to starting to build those. It's going to be slow. Rome wasn't built in the day, and, and these relationships won't be built in the day. Don't expect it right away. Don't push it. Don't force it. But begin prayerfully looking for those people who you can build those kinds of relationships with. And when I say community, I don't mean you need 40 people. We got a room of 100 people or so in here. You don't need 100 people that can bear your, your story. You need one or two or maybe three but we do need those people. And scripture really emphasizes the importance of one another bearing those burdens. But it takes some work on your part, takes a little risk on your part to step out and begin building those relationships. So we've got self-care, we've got social care, and then I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't say professional care. right? I, I, being a biomedical scientist, I am a, a very grateful person uh, for what God has provided to us in the form of various professionals and the expertises that they have. Um, the therapists, the psychiatrists, the psychologists, uh, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, there's a, a truckload of wisdom out there in those communities. And I would hope that you would give them a chance at least to speak into your life and hopefully bring some, uh, some hope and healing to you in the process as well. So please consider that. Uh, I personally believe that every one of us could benefit from that outside set of eyes, right? It's like, having, um, it's like having someone who can bear that burden, but not because you built the relationship, but be because of a professional relationship. And they don't have any skin in the game, meaning they're not there to judge you or tell you what you should be doing or where you went wrong or what a mess you've made of things. They're simply here to help you find the path towards rebuilding and healing. Very, very valuable. So if you're skeptical in that area, give it some prayerful consideration as to whether or not you'd like to bring some, some professional eyes and ears into your situation. So we've got self-care for building resilience, social care for building resilience, and I believe professional care for building resilience. All right, now before I invite Kathy back up here to dismiss you, one thing I want to mention to you. Uh, I have a new book that's coming out June 1st on this topic. I had hoped to have it published as of today um, because of you guys, but it's not ready. Uh, there's, there's one last edit it's going through, and then it's going to be ready uh, and released on June 1st. But uh, we are going to begin pre-sales today, so if it's something you'd like to pick up or order in advance, you can do that. My wife, Anne. Wave, Anne. Say hi. That's my wife, Anne. Isn't she cute? Yeah, she is. She still is. I've been married to her for almost 22 years. Yeah. And she's just as cute as when she was a teenager. She's great, yeah. Um, I'll tell you more about my family in a second session. But everybody's got bears. You now see where the title is coming from. Um, she can handle it if you want to do any pre-orders. And then when I get the books in my hand in the middle of May, I can mail those out to you if you'd like to do that. Otherwise, just look for it June 1st uh, when it actually does come out. I think that's the last thing I want to say. It is. So Kathy, would you like to come up and say a few things? Yes. So, um, so far, you're glad you're here? Yeah. Um, I love this stuff. I love when Dave comes to speak at Set Free because um, 
He's got so much to share that's not just theory. It's stuff that he knows from his heart. Um, the thing I think that struck me the most uh, in what he was just saying that, that I think gives us the most hope is that how we think, how we choose to think can change our brains. So th this part up here, this, this, uh, our conscious mind that we have control over, sometimes it feels like we don't because these thoughts come racing in, but we do. We have some control there. And with the Holy Spirit's help, we have a lot of control. And as we choose to think, we can begin to undo. You know those, you talked about the, the memories and the emotions? Because a lot of times those are hard memories and emotions. Those are painful, they're scary, they're overwhelming. And that amygdala that he talks about, that thing's on high alert all the time because of. But then with our conscious mind, we can begin to think differently and put ourselves in different positions, in different relationships, in different scenarios, so that we can bring that down with God's help. So with that in mind, I know you've got a lot to process. We're going to give you 15 minutes to unprocess some things and to process. And uh, actually, we're going to do 17 minutes because we're going to be back in here at 1030. So off you go, and we'll be back in here starting up at 1030.